Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. It is, what, 2 o'clock, Friday, November 13th, 2020, because, you know, Friday the 13th isn't horrifying enough. Let's have it in November in 2020. But, my name is Adam, and I've got a few questions for you. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I really hope so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it. Uh, is there something in your everyday life that takes precedence over magic for you? Whether it's a job, career, those are two wildly different things. A partner, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm, I'm right there with you. Husband, father of three, working 40 hours, 42 hours a week. I, I, I feel you, <laughs> okay? Uh but are you still trying to improve at Magic the Gathering? Well, let me see the top of your library. Because it's time to do some enhanced surveillance. Let's look at the three B's of self-improvement in Magic. Budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits. Once we have a word from our sponsor. And by a word, I mean, I'm going to talk about our sponsor. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They have something for literally everyone, basically all the time, uh, from commander to theory about the game to whatever your heart's content is. If you're content for content, you can find that content on PureMTGO.com. And while you're browsing the web, you can check out their sponsor at mtgotraders.com, who thankfully is one of the best places to get your cards for Magic Online. I would argue the best. I've, I've had never had a single problem with them, ever, in getting cards for Moto. That's just the easiest site I've ever done business with at basically any level and I do a lot of business with sites because when you play magic on a budget you're vending cards a lot but going from that you you know if you don't want to look on puremtgo.com you can look at our parent network constructedcriticism.com where we bring the triumphant return of arena mythic cast with Mythic, Michaela, and Spencer. We still have Constructed Criticism. And then we still have Common Knowledge. What, what, what are y'all doing? Get out there and check it out. And while you're checking stuff out, if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show's always going to be free. I am not going to charge people to listen to me talk. But if you want to get some, you know, if you want to help me keep doing this and get some sort of a little kickback for your efforts, that's where you can do patreon.com slash homerpathmtg. 
With that out of the way, let's dive into our first segment every week. We're talking budget spotlight. And this week, our first card is Uncommon. And it's a card you've all probably seen a whole heck of a lot of on Arena. And that card is Soaring Thought Thief. uh, Clocking in at the high, high price of 35 cents. 35 cents. Uh, It's a blue and a black. 1-3, I believe, with flash and flying. And whenever a rogue you control deals combat damage to a player, that player mills two cards. And when an opponent has eight or more cards in the graveyard, your rogues get plus one, plus oh. So it fuels two archetypes at once because it helps you mill faster to deck your opponent. And it obviously makes your rogues bigger. So it's, you know, technically, I guess the... uh, Zendikar Rising Rogues are about milling your opponent, but even looking back in the past, you know, Una's Blackguard was about putting cards in your opponent's graveyard when your rogues were dealing damage. I mean, it's not out of the realm of ordinary for rogues to care about things being in the bin. The fact that you can treat this like a removal spell for one toughness creatures is really cool. Because you can flash it in and block kill their one toughness creature even if they have uh, a pump spell or something along those lines it's frequently going to be large enough that it doesn't matter or you know at minimum you're trading your soaring thought thief for two of their cards it's still fine and this is going to be a comparison that's going to draw it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows but similar to another two drop that has made waves throughout magic's history in Stoneforge Mystic, this card does not need a lot of dedicated support to be good. And what I mean by that is, if your rogues deck, and I use rogues with air quotes here, if your rogues deck is playing Four Thieves Guild Enforcer, Four Soaring Thought Thief, you've got enough rogues in your deck. Maybe you play two Zareth San as your top end threat, and it's an additional rogue to give you some triggers. But by and large, you don't need a lot of help, especially in a standard format where we still have Fable Passage, where we still have lots of counter spells and disruption effects and removal spells in blue and black. And even in a Pioneer format where we have access to Thought Seas which also puts cards in our opponent's graveyard. And some of your opponents are going to be trying to put cards in there to begin with. So, I mean, top to bottom, it's it's not a hard card to enable. And it kind of feels like it in conjunction with Thieves Guild Enforcer feels a whole heck of a lot like the Drago equivalent to playing Squadron Hawk and... Uh, Stoneforge Mystic. Because with Stoneforge Mystic, you were playing the four Stoneforges, and then you would play like a Sword of Feast and Famine, a Sword of War and Peace, a Batter Skull, and that was about it. But, it, you know, Stoneforge plus Squadron Hawk plus your equipments took up about 11 slots in your deck. If we're trying to play Rogues right now, you can get by on a Rogues package that's like somewhere between 8 and 12 cards. And then the whole surrounding infrastructure around it can just be blue-black control. 
And speaking of cards that don't need a whole lot of support to be dominant, we're going to move on to our rare. And both with the rare and the mythic, it's a little bit above what I'd normally put in our budget category, but these cards are just so darn good at what they do that we're, we're willing to make that leap. And quite frankly, the as we'll get to later on, blue-black decks tend to be a little bit on the cheaper side just by virtue of the the infrastructure that you're putting into them outside of a few key staple cards there's not very many expensive dedicated blue black cards so uh our rare this week is thief of sanity from guilds of ravnica it is one a blue and a black buys you a 2-2 flying and whenever it deals combat damage to a player Look at the top three cards of that player's library. Exile one of them face down. Put the other two in the graveyard. You may cast that card for as long as it remains in exile. and Or you may cast cards exiled by Thief of Sanity for as long as they remain exiled. And use mana as though it were any type to pay their mana costs. And this card comes in at $3 a copy. So, Thief of Sanity dominates games where you untap with it. That is the simplest way I can put it. If I get to cast this and then untap my lands, this thing is going to bludgeon you to death. Because we are simultaneously denying you the cards that go into the graveyard or making it harder to get them, while at the same time taking the best ones for ourselves. That is really powerful. And not for nothing, it is really funny when you come across an opponent, see the truth in their top three cards. Tell me that doesn't feel like cheating, because it does. It fuels a lot of the same cards as Soaring Thought Thief, in the sense that it makes cards like Thieves Guild Enforcer hit faster. It makes cards like Soaring Thought Thief turn on and buff your team better. It makes cards like Drown in the Lock better because it puts things in the graveyard. It makes cards like Into the Story better because it gives you access to your four mana draw four faster because it puts cards in the graveyard. Because, yeah, you, you get two cards when you activate it, but then when you cast the card, that's a third one. So it potentially puts up to three cards in the graveyard with every connection. Which helps fuel all of these other things you want to do. And notably, it doesn't die to the efficient side of the staple black removal spells in, Pop in Pioneer. Not Pauper, sorry. Pioneer. Uh, notably, it does not die to an unrevolted fatal push, and it does not die to an unkicked blood chief's thirst, which means they have to jump through an additional hoop. They either have to kill it at a mana disadvantage during their turn with blood chief's thirst, or they have to go through the, they have to have a fable passage or another way to trigger revolt in order to kill it for one mana with fatal push. So, you know, or they have to waste a whole eliminate on it when they were looking at using that for something else. Whatever the case may be, the fact that this doesn't die to their most efficient removal spells in black deck mirrors, especially when you look at, you know, the Rakdos Pyromancer decks or 
what have you along those lines. The fact that it doesn't die to the most commonly played removal spells in Pioneer and Historic is not nothing. Let me tell you. And next at Mythic, we have the current Guildmaster of the Demir and card that I've tried so desperately to make good. Uh, Lazav the Multifarious. It is a blue and a black, buys you a 1-3. When Lazav enters the battlefield, surveil one. And then for X mana, you can target a creature in your graveyard with converted mana cost X. Lazav becomes a copy of that creature, except its name is still Lazav the Multifarious, and it gains this ability. Note that that does not say until end of turn. It's permanent. Activate it once, and it stays whatever it turns into until you do it again or they kill it. It enables and has synergies with a number of powerful creatures. Most notably with Uro and Croxa, the Titans from Theros Beyond Death. Because when they're in the graveyard, they have a converted mana cost of two. Uh, Uro has a converted mana cost of three. Croxa has a converted mana cost of two. But Lazav has already entered the battlefield, so you don't have to worry about losing Lazav to the uh, sacrifice this creature unless it escaped trigger. It's already on the battlefield. But what you can do is you can Lazav, bend the thing, and then the next turn, turn Lazav into it in order to take advantage of its attack trigger and still be beating him to death with a 6-6. It makes blocking while you have open mana really awkward because you could potentially turn it into anything out of your graveyard so that like the math is thrown off. And it's surprisingly good as a commander. One, because it's a two-mana creature. Puts you in the right colors for disruptive elements. And you have a lot of different ways you can build it. You can build it as Shapeshifter Tribal. You can build it as a, like an aggressive self-mill deck to give Lazav a lot of options to choose from. You can build it the way I have to try to like fully embrace the philosophy of the guild. Where you're just stealing everybody's things. And Lazav lets you continue to, to take advantage of creatures that give you things from your opponent when they connect. It's all the way around. Like The card is surprisingly good. In particular, if you want to build a Grixis Luris deck for Pioneer, you can do a lot worse than playing Lazav in that deck. Because you can... Lazav, Lazav still works with Croxa. Luris still works with Croxa, but Lazav also works with Luris. Because even if they thought sees the Luris out of your hand, Lazav can just turn into it and then bring back your Croxa. <laughs> so like top to bottom, it's just wild the kinds of things you can do. And then last but not least, our, our commander spotlight is Mnemonic Betrayal. It's a uh, sorcery for one, a blue, and a black. Exile each card or each non-land card in all opponents' graveyards. Until the end of the turn, you can cast those cards. 
Somebody's car alarm's going off. It's wild. I don't know whose car alarm that is. Anyway, until the end of the turn, you can cast the cards. Until end of turn, you can cast those cards as though they were in your hand. Spend mana as though they were any type in order to do so. And, you know, turns out it's a Yog, it's a Yogmoth's will for everybody else's graveyard. That's what it is. In the simplest terms, it's Yogmoth's will for everyone else's graveyards. It's a great way to equalize an opponent who's trying to storm off in a commander game and just obliterate the whole table. They're trying to load the graveyard so they can set up, you know, Mind's Desire into Sins of the Past or Mizzix's Mastery into Mind's Desire. You know, just trying to set up the nonsense so that they can storm off and kill everybody. Right? Wrong. Because now I get to do it. For three additional mana, to get things started, I can just storm off with your graveyard and kill you. That seems fair, right? That seems totally fine. Even just casting a bunch of ramp and draw spells is a good way to catch up when you've fallen behind. Like... You cast Mnemonic Betrayal on the table, you've got three mana open, and you cast somebody's Soul Ring that got blown up early. You cast uh, the the one CDH player at the table, you cast their Mana Vault. Use the mana from all of that to cast this player's Ramp Spell, their Explosive Vegetation, or Nissa's Renewal, or whatever. You know, to get a bunch of lands out of your deck. Even if that's the fair version of the, the of what you're doing, and you're not using someone's storm graveyard to kill them, it's a good way to catch up to the table when you've fallen behind. And then the nicest thing about it, and it's kind of a theory, the whole theory that went into building Lazav the way that I did, is the more powerful the table, the stronger a lot of your cards are, and Demonic Betrayal is no no exception. The more powerful everybody else is, the stronger this, this card is. But it's always going to function at a relative power level to the rest of the table. And that brings us to our Brew of the Week. It's a deck that I've played for a long time in Pauper. Very long time. And that deck is Blue Black Delver Exhum. At its core, it's a tempo deck. You're still playing Delver Secrets, Ang uh, Gurmag Angler, a bunch of cantrips, a bunch of removal, and a bunch of disruption. But on top of all of that, you're packaging in uh, Thought Scour, Striped Riverwinder, Mental Note, and Exhum. Notably, the Striped Riverwinder package is really cool because it allows you to have a natural curve that lets you drop a turn two five five. You cycle Striped Riverwinder on one, draw a card, untap, play a black source, cast Exhum. There's my five five hexproof. So 
I don't care how many screds you have. I don't care how many vapor snags you have. I don't care how many ghastly demises you have. It's not going anywhere. You better have exactly an edict. So at its core, it's a tempo deck. Delver, Angler, the Riverwinder Exhumed Package represent the, ca the capacity to just put a really big, really quick threat on the board. Ghastly Demise, Snuff Out, Echoing Truth, Slash Decay, Pestilent Winds represent your removal suite. You know, the ability to keep the board relatively clear or clear of things you can't beat. You have Disruption from your counter spells and access to cards like Duress after sideboard. And then you have a lot of cantrips. You have access to all of them. Brainstorm, Ponder, Preordain, Thought Scour, Mental Note. Uh, serum visions if you really want to go deep into the well and well there's a lot to look at so why would we go with the exhume package over just playing more of these other elements with Delver Secrets and Gurmag Angler or just Augur Bolas Gurmag Angler and not worry about Delver at all the turn one cycle mill into turn two exhume gives you a 5-5 hexproof Delver a lot of the time but moreover, even if we don't do that, we, you know, we can thought scour ourselves on turn one, thought scour mental note on turn one, and just flip an angler into the graveyard and exhume it on turn two. There's no rule that says I can only exhume striped riverwinder. Any of the creatures in the deck can be brought back by exhume. Riverwinder is just the best one. The cantrips still fuel the traditional aspect of the deck in particular. Uh, Brainstorm Ponder help you get through like the where you're drawing the wrong half of the deck. Like you draw too many river winders. Well, between Brainstorm and Thought Scour, or Ponder and Thought Scour, you can get them into the graveyard without having to individually cycle each one. Because you can brainstorm three cards into your hand, load the three, uh, load the two uh, river winders stuck in your hand on top, mill them away with thought scour to draw again, and in that way you still get to take advantage of all the other cards without, you know, it it's weird because it makes a lot of your decision trees easier. And along that same line, it also helps make sideboarding easier because you've got a dedicated six to eight cards that you know can come out in a lot of matchups. If you know the game is going to be a disgusting little grind fest, you can board the exhume package out because you know you're not going to be able to get on the board and stay ahead. If you're playing against the Monarch decks, it's just not good enough. You would rather have more interaction. Well, that makes it easy to board into more interaction and know what you're boarding out quickly. As for weaknesses of the deck as a whole, it can get kind of airy, if you catch my drift. When you're playing this many cantrips and not a lot of like dedicated real card draw, one of the dangers you run into is the prospect of your cantrips just drawing more cantrips a whole bunch of times in a row, and you spend a whole turn looking for something that you never find because you just keep drawing into more card draw. 
And especially if you're under pressure, that can end up costing you a game. And that's any Xerox-style tempo deck there ever has been. It's, it's a risk you run into. And then because it tries to occupy this sort of mid-rangey tempo part of the game plan, you can definitely just draw the wrong cards. You can draw all your removal spells against a control deck in your opening hand, thinking everything's fine. You can draw all your counter spells against an aggro deck and just get run over while you're sitting back trying to counter three drops. All the way around, you know, it's, it's definitely possible to beat this deck in convincingly. But that does it for Brew of the Week. Let's go into our main topic this week. We are on part five, the final of the Allied Color Guilds in the color combination series that I started several weeks ago. This week we're talking about blue and black, the Demir. So what or who or what is House Demir? In the lore of Magic the Gathering. It's a secretive, manipulative, underhanded group treated by and large as if they don't exist on the plane of Ravnica. It was, they were one of the founding guilds of the original guild pact, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever it was, according to the original novel. It's been a long time since I read it. But one of the conditions of signing the guild pact was for the, the guild's master and the guild itself to be largely treated as, you know, to, to be hidden away. So nobody would know they were there. The guild operates now, after the events of the original Ravnica novel, it operates now on three levels. It has a very public face with, you know, couriers and messengers, trafficking and in in information and whatnot it has the intermediaries the the folks hiding away in back alleys and convincing everyone you know going out giving orders the the middle the middle people as it were and then you have the real leaders only the guild master ever truly knows everything that's going on it's important to note that Zadak, Lord of Secrets, was the original Guildmaster in the original Ravnica novel and is the villain of the original Ravnica novel. Hashtag spoiler alert, but it is what it is. An ancient vampire with a hunger not just for blood, but for, for, for secrets, for information. While currently... Lazav, the current guildmaster, I just use currently so many times. The current guildmaster is being positioned toward being a major villain down the line. The belief that, you know, while Lazav helped them in War of the Spark, it was with an ulterior motive of not wanting to lose the power that they have and wanting to be able to build toward a hostile takeover of their own later on. The best way I can describe the lore of the Guild of the Demir is consider them like the Men in Black franchise, but, oh my gosh, so much more sinister. They are underhanded, ruthless, secretive, 
kill whatever they have to, take whatever they have to, to maintain their power over their plane. In non-Ravnican lore, blue-black cards tend to depict tricky, prankster-type creatures. And by and large, like, you don't get a lot of, like, big, hulking, blue-black monstrosities. With notable exceptions being some of the zombies from Innistrad and, and that ilk. But by and large, blue and black cards are just not very large. Or if they are, they cost a lot more mana. So what are the strengths of blue and black mana together? And obviously, considering how much time and effort I've put into playing these two colors together exclusively just over the last two years, I think I'm a little uniquely qualified to talk about this. Strength number one is tempo. The best way I can define tempo is by how you're using it. Because to gain tempo, you have to do something with it. Otherwise, you're just kind of spinning wheels and nothing's happening. But tempo would be advantage number one. By and large, the ability to undo the progress the opponent is making on the board. You are exchanging cards in your hand for the ability to reset the board in some way, shape, or form, either to maintain an advantage you already have or to try to undo an advantage an opponent has to try to catch up. And then, depending on how your deck is built, what it's designed to do, you are either using that window of time to get extra cards in order to continue to do that, or you're using it to get additional combat phases in order to get your opponent dead before you get, before they catch up with you. You also have the unique monopoly on being able to interact with cards that are not on the battlefield currently. It's kind of a big one. It's kind of a big one for me, if I'm being honest. Between counter spells, hand disruption, um, I mean, counter spells, hand disruption, uh, the cards like Unmoored Ego, cards like, I mean, there's, there's a litany of cards out there that remove things before they're a threat. You want to take a proactive approach to removing threats. So, you also have a unique capacity for prolonging the game. With removal, hand disruption, card draw, you know, filtering, just general overall flexible blue gobbledygook. You can make games go as long as you need to in order to string them out, find a way to seize an advantage, and win. You win a lot of games really ugly playing blue and black together. And then last but not least is flexibility. One of the hallmarks of blue and black in my time playing, all the way back in 2004, is that blue and black decks tend to be kind of nebulous in their approach. 
They can be aggressive, but they tend to want to adopt more of a defensive posture unless the game is going the other way and they need to hurry up and close the door before you catch up. And that flexibility is what's always drawn me to it. It's the, the, the idea that instead of trying to go all the way down one path, committing fully to doing this one thing and this one thing only, we can instead make a point out of giving ourselves a chance to win any game in front of us. So weaknesses in blue-black, Sometimes you can get beat up by people who buy all the way in on something. Decks that go way under you can make it difficult for you to catch up on tempo and reset the board. Decks that go way over the top of you can put you in a position where you have to be able to answer every single turn. Decks that have powerful ways to generate card advantage, the idea of winning off the top of the deck. This is particularly true in older formats like Modern and Pioneer, but even in Standard up until the banning of, uh, of Omnath and Escape to the Wilds. Not even counting Uro in the mix when you're playing Blue-Black, the opponent being able to just top deck a draw five. You know, I have a four mana draw four, but they have a five mana draw five that I can't take out of their hand. That's really bad for us. You know, Omnath just clocks us without ever getting to attack, so I can't use these mopey little flash death touch creatures to kill it. And gives you free spells along with that. It's just obnoxious. And then you have sticky permanence, the idea that like creatures or enchantments or artifacts that either give you value upon entering the battlefield or that leave something behind when they leave, or both. Because it becomes more difficult to evaluate your level of card advantage or tempo or any of the rest of it if you can't remove something permanently. And then last but not least, flashback, jumpstart, escape spells, uh, creatures with great uh, you know, abilities to come out of the graveyard or to generate advantage from the graveyard. There's not a lot of exile in blue-black. I know there's a fair amount of exile removal in black, but when you play blue and black together, you normally bank on efficiency and tempo, and you can get bullied by creatures that keep coming out of the graveyard. You know, look no further than how relevant Croxa is in Standard right this minute when Rogues in Blue-Black is one of the better decks in Standard. We're helping them fuel their Croxa, and they are thanking us graciously. So what's the mechanical identity of Demir? Well, it starts with their printed, like, in-lore, in-game mechanics. Uh, Ravnica City of Guilds introduced us to the transmute mechanic, a mechanic that I do not foresee ever revisiting because it's just a little bit too strong. And I do mean that just a little bit. It's not like completely busted, but it is very, very, very good. 
Uh, Transmute is for three mana, depending on the card's color. It only appeared on blue and black cards. But if the card was multicolored, it was one, a blue, and a black. If it was either blue or black, it would be one and double. So like one blue, blue, or one black, black. You could discard that card from your hand at sorcery speed to go get another card with the same converted mana cost. The closest thing we've seen to a reprint of Transmute is the uh, the card from either Theros or Born of the Gods, Disciple of Deceit, which allowed you to do that, uh, effectively transmute any card in your hand when you untapped it. And that's fine, but it's not as good as just having a slew of transmute cards that you're comfortable playing. You don't like playing them, but you're comfortable playing them. And then they also give you access to broken things that you want down the line. You know, a card like Clutch of the Undercity, one blue, blue, black, bounce target or bounce target creature, its controller loses three life, and then it has transmute for one, a blue, and a black. You're less interested in that for the bounce ability, although you'll certainly take it. And you're much more interested in the ability to turn that into any four drop in your deck. The fact that it represents things as ver as disparate as Rewind, Cryptic Command, Damnation, uh, Vraska's... Like, this card represents so many other cards in your deck. It's so... it's. You know, at its core, it's Diabolic Tutor for any 4-drop for 3 mana. And that's really powerful. Transmute was powerful enough to fuel my first combo deck. Muddle the Mixture and Drift of Phantasms were the reason the deck was good. Because you could transmute Muddle the Mixture to find Weird Harvest, which would go find you Drift of Phantasms and MAGA, and then you could use Drift of Phantasms to transmute to find Early Harvest. You could also transmute Drift of Phantasms to find Heartbeat of Spring or to find uh, Invoke the Fire Mine. You could transmute Muddle the Mixture to find. Uh, oh, what is the card's name? What is that card's name? So. Uh, Actually, part of the reason I played one of the win conditions I did in the sideboard was because it was one I could transmute muddle to find. So, like, at its core, transmute's a very, very powerful mechanic, even if the cards that have it are less powerful than they otherwise should be. Like, muddle the mixture really should have been a negate for blue-blue. I could even live with it being a negate for blue-blue one, but that just would have made it even better. Because that would have made it have a CMC of three, so we wouldn't have had to mess around with all these uh, weird harvests. So, you know, the second mechanic took the guild in a wildly different direction, where the first mechanic was about finding the correct tool for the correct problem. The second mechanic in Cypher was trying to reward you for using cheap, evasive creatures. Uh, Cypher appeared on instant and sorcery spells. And a card with Cypher would exile encoding target creature when it resolved instead of going to the graveyard. 
And whenever the encoded creature deals combat damage to a player, you would cast a copy of the encoded spell for free. Now, there have been some some of these cipher spells that have ended up going on to be commander staples. Cards like Whispering Madness. Yeah, that's all I got. Exactly Whispering Madness. That's the only one I can think of. That were that were solid, like remotely playable cards. And that was really the problem with Cypher. It was a mechanic they dialed back a little too much. They made the cards cost a little too much mana in order to not punish people for not being able to out difficult-to-block creatures. And it's, it's a mechanic or a style of mechanic I would like to see them come back to down the line. It's a really cool one. The idea that when you cast this spell, it becomes... It's, you know, the, the, the flavor of it to me screams. The, the Guildmaster passes a piece along to one of the, the, the underlings. The underling passes it on to one of the grunt workers, one of the, one of the hired goons, the assassins. They may not even know it. For those of you, like, the, I'm not remotely ashamed to admit this, but the kids have been watching through on Yu-Gi-Oh! GX lately. And the scene in the second season of Yu-Gi-Oh! GX where uh, Aster wins against Jaden and then the spell that his manager had placed upon his deck takes root and Aster didn't know about it, that's the flavor of Cypher to me. Is that, you know, frequently these guys didn't even know they were doing it. These, these, these assassins and hit people and... Uh, they just, they didn't know what was going on for sure. They knew they had to go kill somebody or they knew they had to go track something down, but they didn't know what was happening once they got there because the spell was programmed to do it when it happened. And then the last printed mechanic for the Demir was in Guilds of Ravnica. And it is the least, like... The, the Guilds of Ravnica block, so to speak, I use block in air quotes because it was technically three individual large sets, but it was really designed under the old block system before they changed back away from it, and then they just added some cards to make them all large sets. But the Guilds of Ravnica block really kind of featured some phoned-in mechanics. There's some really good ones. And then there's, like, this one's really good, but it doesn't need to be a Demir, like, keyword. It This could be an evergreen mechanic, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in Surveil. Sur it's always depicted with Surveil X, or Surveil with a number, and then it's... You look at that many cards on the top of your library... And you can leave them there or put any number of them in the graveyard. We've been doing that forever. Literally the next fall set after we got that ability on Eat to Extinction. Which exiles a creature of Planeswalker. And then functionally says Surveil 1 even though it doesn't say Surveil 1. Like this doesn't feel like a mechanic that has to be exclusive to Ravnica. So while I love 
Card selection mechanics. I always have. I love cards that give me more options. Give me ways to find other cards. That's why I like to transmute. It doesn't feel very flavorful. So, moving away from the mechanics they've actually printed on Demir cards with the Demir watermark toward tropes that have kind of popped up over the years in their design of blue and black decks, both in limited and in constructed magic. You've got your, your common mechanical tropes are quote unquote fish decks where you have cheap evasive creatures linking arms with counter spells and abilities that push you in a particular direction. You know, a combination of cheap removal, cheap disruption, and cheap creatures lends itself very, very well to the fish deck. By that same token, they also lend themselves well to evasive tribal decks. And these two tend to kind of walk hand in hand. Or wing and wing, as the case may be. You get weird, kind of mopey, you know, inefficient creatures, but they are evasive. And they have abilities that trigger when they deal damage or that, you know, when they attack. And because they're evasive, they get to do those abilities more and more and more. You know, creature types like pirates, fairies, rogues, uh, the merfolk in Shadowmoor. Whatever. I mean... Evasive tribal decks. Linear control decks are either focused heavily on the board or focused heavily on interacting with things that aren't on the board. They either give you a lot of pieces for draw go or a lot of pieces for tap out. And then I would be remiss if I mentioned blue black and didn't talk about mill. The act of trying to deck your opponent, run them out of cards so that they draw from an empty library and lose. And that moves us to the actual typical deck archetypes that get built versus, you know, the, the typical decks you will see when you go up against blue and black mana, and only blue and black mana, you'll see control first and foremost, because a lot of people like myself like to keep things easy. There's, there's this common misconception that control decks are really difficult to play, and, you know, it takes masters of magic to play them and play them well, but in reality, I find the opposite to be true. There are a few things in this life that are easier than playing a control deck. You just have to make sure you hit land drops and don't die. As long as you're doing those two things, you are correctly piloting your control deck. Uh, Xerox, the idea of playing cheap cantrips in order to cheat on lands and then using all those cantrips to facilitate some sort of central efficient threat. Whether it's Delver of Secrets, Gurmag Angler, Death Shadow, Tassigur the Golden Fang. Uh, there's a lot, to, a lot to choose from there. Obsession style tempo, and I say obsession style tempo because it's the most popular variation on that theme. But the idea of putting auras that will trigger when your creature connects on evasive beaters... And using those auras to generate progressively larger amounts of card advantage. You know, it's definitely not just a mono blue thing. I did it in blue black and it was successful. 
uh, using Kite Self Rebooter to steal the removal spell out of their hand and then put Obsession with Dive Down and Friends in hand. Playing sort of the protect the queen strategy. Where you just, you, you, instead of doing it like the blue-white Auras deck, where you're trying to stack a whole bunch of stuff on one creature, you can even do this in standard right now. Where you play a bunch of like flyers, a couple of unblockables or whatever, and then we have Sea Dasher Octopus. And we have uh, Shell Shield in, in uh, what is it, in Zendikar Rising. The idea that you want to keep connecting with what feels like a mopey creature, but every time it connects, it just pushes you that little bit further ahead. And then you're exchanging cards from your hand to maintain this lead that you have on the board. You have flash decks. There's a lot of direct flash support currently in standard. Cards like uh, Slither Wisp, Cunning Nightbonder, all the rogues that have flash. Thieves Guild Enforcer, Soaring Thought Thief, um, Omen of the Sea. There's, there's a ton of cards that have flash in standard. And Slither Wisp is a really good way to pay you off for playing them. Cunning Nightbonder is an okay way to pay you off for playing them because it locks your opponent out of counter spells. Makes them cost less mana. These are both things we can live with. You have the idea of value mid-range. In blue-black, it's kind of weird to play value mid-range because one of the tenets of value mid-range is like really good top-end threats. But for example, when the Scarab God was the best threat in Standard after they banned all the energy cards, or at least they banned the free energy cards in Attune with Aether and Rogue Refiner, when the best way to generate free energy was with cards like Glint Sleeve Siphoner and Aether Hub, and basically nothing else, the idea of playing those cards in conjunction with the Scarab God, and then creatures that did a thing when they entered the battlefield. Ravenous Chupacabra. Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. Dusk Legion Zealot. Like Dusk Legion Zealot, Ravenous Chupacabra, Lintsleaf Siphoner. All of these cards were reasonable, and then they became much more powerful because the Scarab God was just this singularly bombastic threat that was both simultaneously very efficient for its time, being a 5-5 five, five for 5, that could frequently aggressively be traded off in battle in order to bring it back to your hand later. And this engine that would dominate a game if you got to untap with it. You also have self-mill graveyard synergy decks. And that's that's a bit of a mouthful. I like to call them dredge decks. Because <laughs> um, that's what they're all based on. The idea that putting a bunch of my own cards in the graveyard is valuable. Most of the power of these old school dredge decks, and especially the quote-unquote dredgeless dredge in Pioneer, comes from the blue and black cards. You can build that deck as nothing but blue and black cards, and it's still going to be fine. You know, milling myself for a bunch, and then putting Narc Amoeba and a bunch of prized amalgams back onto the battlefield 
still really powerful. And then last but not least, we have the regular dedicated mill deck, which I've seen a little bit of in standard with Teferi's Tutelage, Ruined Crab, enough rogues to frustrate you to death. Just top to bottom. It's not bad, it's not great. That makes sense. It's it's dedicated to the idea. It's like a burn deck that has to deal 60. But the spells tend to do more damage than two or three. And then last but not least, kind of the overall fundamental view of blue-black in terms of archetypes. You are more focused on finesse over brawn. Even when you have a singularly powerful threat like the Scarab God, or when you have a card like Bitter Blossom, Bitter Blossom didn't dominate Standard just because it was powerful. It dominated Standard because it was powerful, and because of the other fairy cards, it was notoriously difficult to get it off the board. You finesse your opponents. You, you angle them. You hold them at bay. You don't knock them back down into place. You just swat them, keep... Keep swatting them back. Just get back for a minute. Let me let me figure stuff out. Get back, get back, get back. You prefer to deal with threats proactively when you can, whether it's by leaving up counter magic with access to flash threats or by using hand disruption to make sure they never become a threat. And then most of them, even the, the value mid or dedicated mill or any of the rest of them, most of them are grounded in tempo in some form. You're either trying to push it aggressively or you're trying to dial it back and keep it from getting away from you it's a fickle but powerful ally so that's all i have for this week everybody i hope you enjoyed the mere concept of playing blue and black um i will be back next week we will be talking about the orzov guild as we start the enemy color guilds we're rapidly approaching episode 100. I'm very excited about it. But if you've got questions, comments, concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter, at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Uh, join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of a dollar or more, you gain access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, where we talk about episode topics, deck lists, concepts, homebrew ideas, and then at $3, your deck moves to the front of the line for Brew of the Week if you've got one. May, and then at $5 a week, I write you an episode, or $5 a week, $5 a month. I write you an episode about a topic you want. So, all that out of the way. I don't have any dad jokes this week. I'm sorry. I looked. Couldn't find them. So, I do have a request about MTG Dad Jokes, because I'm going to have a very special guest once we get to episode 100, and I want everyone to save them up. I'm going to make a thread on Twitter and in the Facebook group, and I want you to save them up and then unload all of them for episode 100, because... Believe me when I say this is going to be a very special guest. I don't know when we're going to get them again. 
but I'm really looking forward to it. And I know they are too. So until next week, remember, everybody's going through a lot right now. Stressful times, regardless of what you're trying not to dwell on. So remember, never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, subvert your adversaries, but be kind. We'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.